Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, starting with verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. We will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The word of the Lord. Speak like that. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. reading from the gospel according to Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Such was his intention when, behold, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home, for it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived in her. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife into his home. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent. This is actually our last gathering in person together of the year. 
And so um, I hope that this season has been a meaningful one, a time of reflection, of anticipation, of hope. I, I say this knowing, and we said this in our prayer earlier, but, but knowing that this season is, not just, is never for us always just a season of nice, peaceful reflection. <laughs> There's always lots of other things that come along with it. And, and I think that remembering today God's presence with us in those difficult moments or those weak moments or those challenging things that even come along with the season is so incredibly important. And in fact, I think our readings point us to that today. So as the Advent wreath is growing with light, indicating we are getting closer to the source of our anticipation, we're longing with Israel and with humankind, longing for good news of great joy, which is met in the birth of Israel's Messiah, who is also the Lord of the world. This is true today, even though his lordship is hidden. We also are weary. We struggle. And yet it is true. This Advent comes at a time when hostilities in our world are really high and rampant. And the church continues in the midst of it to shout, come Lord Jesus. So as Christians today, we're reminded of this story of this child who was born, this man who lived and died and rose again from us, for us. This is the true story, even when we see evidence to the contrary. So even when the challenges we face seem overwhelming, both in your life, my life, and in the world, we're reminded that we have a sure hope. And yet, it's really easy to stay at the bird's eye level with Christmas. This is a great story about world peace and global conflict ceasing, that Christ is bringing peace to the earth, that swords are beaten into plowshares and a world restored, and all of that is true. But this also all plays out in our real everyday lives. That in a sense, God does in the life of every Christian a microcosm of what he does for the entire world. Our Isaiah reading points us in that direction. So if we read Isaiah, we have to do this, I think, as Christians, to start by reading Isaiah in isolation from what we know about the prophecies of Jesus. So this, in and of itself, if you just read the book of Isaiah, it's a prophecy about a young woman in Israel who will be with child. In a sense, it's a reminder that the birth and growth of every child is a sign of Emmanuel, of God with us. That every time a child is born, it's a gift. It's a revelation that God has not given up on us. God is faithful to bring promise, to bring goodness in the world. This particular prophecy, though, is couched in a story about Isaiah and the unbelieving King Ahaz, who was king of Judah at the time. And technically, he himself was a son of David. So he was in the lineage of David, this guy Ahaz. He was the rightful heir to David's throne. And Isaiah tells the king that Judah, his kingdom, will not ultimately be destroyed. And he says to him, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. God is offering you a sign. But the king is like, no, I don't want a sign. Why? Well, if we look at the story, he already made a plan. I, I won't get into all the details, but there's this massive Assyrian empire that's just going through the world at this time. And, and Ahaz, rather than trusting in God, has kind of cast his lot with the Assyrian empire. And he said, I'm going to trust in them. So he doesn't trust God, but he also covers his idolatry with a false piety. He says, no, I don't want to receive the sign from God because I don't want to put God to the test. So he covers it with kind of his false 
piety. But then Isaiah proceeds with revealing the sign. He says, I'm going to give you the sign anyway. The sign involves a girl having a baby. Verse 14. Now the word um, for the word in Hebrew here is Alma for maiden or translated virgin sometimes. You'll see that this is strongly debated. I and mean, every time about this year, there's always a History Channel special or Time magazine article talking about the virgin birth. And you know, it's a myth, or it's you know, this or that, or here's the debates on all of that. Well, the word in Hebrew simply means young woman. And the reason why it's challenging is if Isaiah just wanted to say virgin, as we understand that word, there would have been another word he would have used other than Alma. But if he just wanted to say young woman, there was another word that he could have used that was different. This word is somewhere between the two. It's like a young woman of marrying age. So that's why many translations, even the newer ones, stay with this word maiden, even though it's archaic, because it's like the closest thing we have kind of to this idea of a young woman of marrying age at the time. But you can see why there's so many debates, because there's people that come out and say, no, it just means young woman. And then other people say, no, it means virgin. Well, it kind of is something else. It's something in the middle of all of that. When the passage is translated in the New Te- in Greek, and, and it's quoted by Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew takes it and he uses the Greek word for virgin, parthenos, which is actually where we get the word parthenon from. It's old history, but, um, but it means virgin. That's what the word means. So Matthew kind of takes it through Greek and that's where we get this idea, this word virgin. Well, hundreds of years later, Jesus is born of a girl who was a virgin when she conceived and her baby turned out to be God with us in a personal sense. Matthew uses the words of Isaiah to help his Christian readers understand something of the precedent of the event. Why am I telling you all this? Well, sometimes what we like to do as Christians is we like to look at the Isaiah passage and take it in isolation and say, see, that's proof of Jesus. (laughs) And then we argue with all our friends, see, Isaiah said, and that's proof of all that. But actually what Matthew is doing is he's saying, hey, look back at this proclamation of a miraculous birth. Like, this is what God does. He brings about miraculous births. So all those little arguments aren't often helpful because Matthew is using that as precedent that God does amazing things. Isaiah says that before the child is old enough for moral discrimination, the two nations which threatened Judah at the time will be destroyed. And we see that. Syria fell to the Assyrians in 732 BC. Israel, the northern kingdom, fell in 722 BC. So the point is is that by the time a few months have passed, this baby has been born and the baby is eating curds and honey. So by the time this baby is eating kind of grown-up food or big kid food, right, um, then the the crisis which is preoccupying Ahaz will be over. So there's this promise. It's been proved that God is with us, and because of that reality, she will be able to name her child Emmanuel, or God is with us. Because God has done a big thing that shows us his presence, she can name this child Emmanuel. Read in light of the story of Jesus, which we are to do, this is a story about the redemption of the world in the birth of one specific child who will be called Emmanuel, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. So when we anticipate Christ, we do so cosmically, so in the big sense, but also personally. 
Yes, the birth of Jesus means the overthrow of the powers that be, the overthrow of oppressive rulers and corrupt systems. It means resurrection of the dead and forgiveness of sins and a new world. But the birth of Christ also means he hasn't given up on you. You are part of that new creation. You are part of that family. So no matter how dark our circumstances, no matter what you've been told in your life about your personality or your sin or what's been done to you, God is with you. And as we step into Christmas, we are awakened to the, crea- to the reality that God did not give up on us in our sin and our rebellion against his plans for creation. He stepped in, took on human flesh, and saved us. All right, let's make this really, really real. So I think that all true human empathy finds its home in the reality of Christ. If we really believe that our God is the one who stepped into our world, it ought to change how we respond to one another. Brene Brown, who is perhaps the leader in the field of studying empathy, says, Empathy is the skill set to bring compassion alive. That empathy is how to communicate deep love for people so that they know they're not alone. Empathy is not feeling for someone. It is feeling with them. Empathy is a vulnerable choice. So in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something within myself that knows that feeling. She gives this great example. She says, empathy is recognizing that someone is in the bottom of the hole, joining them and saying, I've been here before and it's tough. By contrast, sympathy is something different. Okay, Empathy is entering that hole, saying, I've been here before, I'm with you, it's difficult. Sympathy is just looking down in the hole and saying, oh, it's bad, huh? Do you want anything? Do you want a sandwich? That's just sympathy, right? We all know that feeling of someone who really cares, who tries to step into our situation and express concern. This is the kind of thing that has changed the world and does change the world. This is God's new world. The child has been born. The world is a different place. So why doesn't it look that way? Well, at the beginning of Romans, Paul describes God's story, which he calls the gospel. And by extension, the identity of God's people. Um, Scholar Michael Byrd says it this way. Ultimately, Paul wants to make sure that he and the Roman Gentile Christians are singing off the same sheet of gospel music. Okay, so want to know we're singing the same thing. We know the same story. We're part of the same thing. So Paul says, here's the story that I'm preaching. I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ, called, set apart to tell this story. The story, the gospel, has an origin. It's been promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's the continuation of an ancient story, the story of Israel. So as he describes the gospel, he makes a bold claim. It's doing it subversively throughout the whole letter. But the world is God's. The world belongs to God. And we can see one of the reasons why this reading is given during Advent. It's because Jesus is Lord and he is claiming his world. Now, Paul is saying this to the people living in Rome, which was the greatest city of the world at the time. The emperor, Caesar, was often called the son of God. Okay, that was the language that was used for him. His birthday every year was hailed as the good news. Okay, so much of the language that Paul is using here is a kind of counter-propaganda. 
He's saying Jesus is the true son of God. So that means Caesar is the false one. He comes, Jesus comes from the house of David, which implicitly we know is a royal lineage way older than the house of Caesar, okay? If this is true of Caesar, it's true of every empire, every false message, and everything which tries to convince us that it has the final say over our lives. N.T. Wright says that Christ's resurrection is the sign of a power which trumps that of tyrants and bullies the world over. Death is the final weapon, and he has broken it. Through him, we've received grace. We've received mission. And in all of this mission, the Gentiles have been brought into the story. So this is one of the things that's running behind the background of the entire New Testament. I've said this before, but in in the entire New Testament, there's this conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Can we get along together? Can we sit at the same table because we have different food preferences? We come from completely different cultural backgrounds. How are we going to get along together? So notice here, in Paul's description, Jesus is both a descendant of David in his earthly life and the son of God in power through the spirit of holiness. That's verse three and verse four in our Romans reading. He's the fulfillment of Israel's story and he's God in the flesh, both at the same time. So Paul's churches are constantly battling through cultural differences, struggling with one another. And Paul says that this story of Israel, the story of David, is not just for one ethnicity. It's not just for one family. It's now for everyone. And if the whole earth is God's, that includes Gentile Christians. And specifically, Paul says in verse 6, he gets real personal. It's for Gentile Christians, but it's for you, he says. These are words of comfort for sure. You're included. You're invited. You're part of the story. But they're also words of sending. So he takes these prophecies of the people of God and he takes the subversion of Caesar and he brings them together and he tells these little house churches in Rome that they matter, that they are the culmination of God's story. And if God works in these little house churches full of fractional Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to eat and live and serve together, I have to believe God's working with us today. There's a sacredness to church. This is hard today in our culture to talk about, but church is sacred. What we do week after week has a sacredness to it. We're part of a story. Now around here, we including in that sacredness is the fun that we have, the celebration, the fact that we joke, that we laugh, we don't take ourselves too seriously. A wreath falls from the communion table from time and time again. But we're we're never flippant about what God is doing in our midst because it is sacred. The proclamation of word and sacrament, no matter the size of the crowd or the excellence of the presentation, matters. God is with us. The Christian story is not about the center of empires. It's about babies born in caves on the edge of empires. In God's kingdom, the cosmic, world-shaking thing happens in the small, the forgotten, and on the margins. And Paul says to this church, that is the representative, that it is the representative and fruit of the story which God is telling. And then he says two words, and they're very familiar to you. He says to them, grace and peace. The great church father, John Chrysostom, says that Paul ends this section of this letter intentionally with the words grace and peace. He proclaimed peace because, quote, it was no small war which Christ put to an end, 
but a many-sided and enduring conflict. In other words, the war of sin and death is over in Christ. He's brought peace. But that's not because of anything we've done or earned. It's only by his grace. Therefore, grace and peace. In our gospel reading, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew's perspective tells a bit more of Joseph's part of the story. Luke focuses more on Mary's perspective. We got Luke last year in the Christmas story, and we'll get it for Christmas, the Christmas Eve service we're doing as well. But, um, but the focus here is on Joseph's perspective. Mary is with child, a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. She and Joseph are betrothed to be married. And Matthew tells us Joseph was faithful to the law. And in this situation, you've heard it before, but to Joseph and to any onlooker, the situation appears to be adultery on Mary's part. That's what it looks like. Joseph, just like every adult then and now, knows how babies are born. Okay. <laughs> Some modern scholars have presumed that because the ancients didn't have modern medical knowledge, that they would just prescribe mythology to where babies come from. But the truth is they knew how it works, just like we know how it works. Joseph thinks that the situation requires him to divorce Mary, so he wants to do so quietly. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, do not be afraid, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. And then um, the angel quotes our Isaiah passage today, which is great for us. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel which means God is with us. Now, the role of Joseph in this unfolding drama has always caught my attention, perhaps because of his position as an adoptive father. When our family first moved towards considering adoption, as with every great thing in our lives as a family, Ashley kind of dragged me along <laughs> for the first bit. I wasn't really sure. And, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this today, but I was nervous about, will I bond the same way with a child who's not a biological child? Of course, now I feel that feels selfish and embarrassing and all of those things. But those questions were all present. And I remember during that time that my grandmother sent me a card with the story of Joseph, reminding me that Joseph is a biblical picture of an adoptive father. And in our lives, God has done a profound work through the miracle of adoption. And I wonder at times about the experience that Joseph is walking through with Jesus, the questions that he's having, and yet the way that by the Spirit that he's able to embrace um, his uh, role as father. Something to notice, though, Joseph did literally nothing. He was not involved in any way in the birth of Jesus. It came to him just as it came to the world, as an unexpected shock. Joseph's posture was just one of receiving, of trusting God's work. Now, as I thought about this, though, I actually think all parents understand a bit of this, that we're all sent home from the hospital with maybe a few guidelines about how the child is supposed to sleep, <laughs> but that's about it, right? We're told, hey, you got the right car seat. Make sure they sleep this way, and okay, bye. <laughs> we just receive it. It's grace. We receive a child and are trying then to live our lives faithful with this person God has given us to nurture and to love, but it's all grace. 
Karl Barth said of Jesus, the male has nothing to do with his birth. What is involved here is, if you like, a divine act of judgment. To what is to begin here, man is to contribute nothing by his action and initiative. Man is not simply excluded, for the virgin is there, but the male, as the specific agent of human action and history, with his responsibility for directing the human species, must now retire into the background as the powerless figure of Joseph. The story shows us something about power in our world. In the ancient world, the male was seen as the driver of society. And of course, there were always, there were amazing women doing powerful things as there are today. But the way people viewed power was through the lens of what men did, the decisions they made, the wars that they won. Joseph, and we see it even more poignantly with the story of Zechariah, shows us the way in which God calls humanity in our weakness rather than our strength. This is so critical to our understanding of the incarnation, that God chose us, but he did not choose us based on our accomplishments. The way God chooses to work is to flip the script. Not emperors, but babies and teenage moms. Not palaces, but caves. Not chariots, but donkeys. The way that the human race has always come about power is turned on its head. And I think this is what Bart means by judgment, that it's an act of God working in human weakness, not man working in his own strength. It's not those with power who run things. It is God who is the Lord of all. Now, this doesn't mean there's no human role. The human role is most specifically illustrated in Mary's response in Luke's gospel. We see her uh, the powerful song that she st- that she sings, the work of the Holy Spirit that happens in and through her, and not only in her song, but in her life, as Mary becomes this example for us to follow of discipleship. But also here in Joseph, in a lesser way, the human role is simply obedience. Mary obeyed what the angel said to her. Here, Joseph also obeys. Now, I look at the situation, I go, an angel appears to you and tells you to do something. I think it would be hard not to obey it, but he did. And in a sense, Mary and Joseph become a new kind of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given everything, and yet in the face of temptation, they chose to rebel. Mary and Joseph come to the table with nothing, backs against the wall, and yet they respond with obedience. Obedience is not a way of earning anything, but a response to grace. And this is why I believe the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important. The Christian faith has affirmed that Jesus is born of a woman and is conceived by God's Spirit. He is fully human and fully divine. Now today, it's common, like I said, to try to poke holes at this doctrine, to make fun of it, to assume it's a relic of bygone days when people were simpler and found it more plausible to believe in seemingly impossible things, that they didn't understand science or they had a negative view of sex. But in such narratives, the virgin birth seems seems to us sometimes in our world like it's a bit of Christian theology that's just too far, just too difficult. Ben Myers, who wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed, says, well, the trouble starts when we isolate one phrase, born of the Virgin Mary, from the rest of the creed. In other words, when we take this little bit of doctrine and we separate it out from the rest of the story, we have a problem there. He says this, it would be like finding a bicycle chain if you'd never seen a bicycle. 
you would struggle to make sense of the strange object. What is it for? Is it a weapon or an uncomfortable piece of jewelry? To understand the bicycle chain, you have to see it in its proper context. It's the same with the virgin birth. If we take it in isolation, we might conclude it's just a spectacular miracle or a logical absurdity. But think about this. The Bible is full of miraculous births. That's the whole story. Like you could say that the whole story of the Bible is about miraculous birth after miraculous birth. Abraham and Sarah, a couple who cannot conceive, are chosen by God and told they will have a great family. Moses, his conception is not a miracle, but his infancy is marked by a miraculous escape from danger. Samson. Then we see the story of Hannah and her son Samuel, who becomes the prophet who will anoint the first kings of Israel. Myers says this is the story of the Old Testament. Quote, at the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story is a story of miraculous births. So for a people of a promise, a people called to bless the nations, every child born to this people was a reminder of the promise. Every child that's born is a reminder God's continuing this story. The line is continuing. Things are moving forward. So it's no surprise that Israel's Messiah would enter the world through the means of miraculous pregnancy. The virgin birth communicates that the incarnation was an act of God, not an act of human beings. We did nothing to make this happen. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And the doctrine of the virgin birth itself is something we're invited to receive rather than to fully grasp. A theology professor I really respect, who's also an Anglican priest, she posted this week and said um, some tips for preachers preaching on uh, Christmas Eve this year. And her number one was, don't try to explain the virgin birth. <laughs> because it's something we receive. It's not something we understand. <laughs> the doctrine of the virgin birth itself is something we're invited to receive rather than to fully grasp. It takes humility to believe something like this. The beauty of Emmanuel is that God is active with us. He's not a God who lives far away and decides to dip his toe in the waters of humanity from time to time. He is always active, always with us. And Matthew wants us to know this. He begins his gospel with the story of God with us. And then what's so cool is when you look at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age. He is always God with us. And this witness is not dependent on how well we perform for him or for others. His witness is not dependent on whether we pray the right way or worship correctly. His witness is an act of grace because he loves you. This is so important. God was not manipulated into this. <laughs> he chose rescue, adoption, restoration with the world, the whole world, yes, but also with you. As I end here, I think about those of us who may today feel like we're at the end of our rope, when our weakness seems way more clear than our strength. The holidays sometimes bring this out in us. This week, Ashley and I looking at each other, we've got kids that are just getting over being sick, and then we have 
Christmas party, not church one, that was a blessing, but we had another Christmas party and we have all these different things to accomplish. We've got our family Christmas and then we've got another Christmas. And so we looked at each other and said, why is this so hard? <laughs> but maybe you're feeling that way this, this season. It brings us out in us. There's a classic cartoon of a bunch of people walking together in a huddled mass on the street and they're walking in all different directions. But it shows in the cartoon they have the same common thought bubble. And the thought bubble is this, all these people really seem to have it together, but I have no idea what's going on. We're all weak, we all fail, we all struggle. The good news is that God is not interested in responding to our human strength. He's not coerced to draw near because we're so great. He draws near by his own freedom, and in doing so, he flips worldly power on his head. God with us is an act of grace. Joseph's only calling in the moment is to obey the angels, the angel who has made his next steps very clear. The only direct command to Joseph in this, do not be afraid. The story reminds us that the world hinges on the act of God, not on our strengths. God is with us. You are not alone. He is not looking at our pain and struggle just with sympathy. Oh, that's tough down there. He is with us in the midst of it. And if God is truly with us in solidarity, this means he cries with us. He laughs with us. He gets angry alongside of us. He gets frustrated when frustrating things happen to us. He does not merely pat us on the head. He's really there. Our calling, just keep going. Listen for his voice. Yield to grace incarnation changed the world and it still does. Amen. And now, as our Savior has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.